just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, Megxit has divided the nation, but could slimming down the monarchy actually be a good idea? Plus, Ireland goes to the polls next month. How could the next Taoiseach impact Brexit talks? And last, what if charity work isn't quite the rewarding experience you expect? So first, is slimming down the only way to future-proof the monarchy? Megxit seems symptomatic of a royal family getting bigger and bigger, which doesn't know what to do with the more minor members of its family. Penny Juna takes a look at the ups and downs of reorganising the firm in this week's cover piece. And joining me to discuss now are Tim Stanley, historian and Telegraph columnist, and Katie Nicholl, royal correspondent and author of numerous books on William, Harry and Meghan. So, Tim, in our cover piece this week, the argument is that the crisis over the Sussexes is less about the couple and more about the future of the monarchy. Do you agree with that? I agree and disagree. On one level, this is really just a celebrity story, and it's also a human family story. What's happened here has happened to loads of people where the golden boy has married someone who a lot of people in the family don't approve of. There's tension. She moves away. She wants him to come with her. This is a very old story. In many ways, this is simply about personality. Where the constitutional issue comes in, where the question comes in about the future of the monarchy, is this this issue of how do you balance the demands of the institution with the very human needs of the royal family itself. And those two things are inherently in contradiction because human beings kick against being told what to do, kick against being told to submit. As I said, you get roused within families like this all the time. But an institution demands submission. It demands that you accept either that your role is to be king or queen or that because you're no longer directly in line to be that thing, you have to shut up. And it's very, very difficult to persuade human beings in this day and age to behave in that way. So I see that as the fundamental tension the monarchy has to resolve in the future. Katie, it is hard for a lot of people listening to this podcast to, to quite imagine what it must be like to to know what your job is going to be from the day you were born. I mean, you know, most of us have gone through various strange ideas about being vets and doctors before realising we can't stand the sight of blood. But in the royal family, you are born to be a royal. Do you think that that Harry and Meghan are setting a precedent here that actually means that another royal could say, you know, another spare could say, actually, you know what, I fancy going off and doing something completely different, leave me alone. Yeah, I do. And I think if this all comes off well, this could be a very useful blueprint for um, not George, because he is going to be king, but for Charlotte and for Louis and the royals that aren't in direct succession to the crown to have a life within the royal family and you use the word spare and I think that's really interesting because if you look historically that role of the spare has always been a tricky one I mean look at Margaret look at Andrew I mean you can go further in history as well and pluck examples out but while the heir's role is is predestined it's mapped out 
it's the spare's job to find a meaningful role, you know, as the just in case. And I actually think that Prince Harry's done a pretty good job at that, you know, whereas historically others have failed, they've come off the rails, you know, and there were points, I think, and I've written about them in, in my book on, on, on Harry and William when they were younger, there were moments when it looked like Harry might come off the rails, but actually he turned things round and I think has found a really clever place for himself within the royal family with Invictus and his charity work so yes there, there could be a potentially good blueprint to come out of this but I think if anyone showed how to make a spare being a success it's Harry. Tim you've written that the monarchy is always adapting to survive so do you think that the slimmed down monarchy that our cover piece looks at is the next necessary adaptation? It probably is and it's also something that current members of the royal family have been talking about anyway. So it's something that they are inclined to do. Of course, the way that uh, the Ottomans dealt with the spare uh, was very different. Uh, as soon as the king died, all the sons would then compete with each other to replace him and try and kill each other. And whoever was left standing would be the person who would go on to become the king. So this puts a new perspective on William and Harry <laughs> so just not visiting each other very of course, often. Exactly, absolutely. You know, being being a royal is a very, very strange thing, especially in a democratic age. It's, it's unlike anything else. It's an inherited condition and it's a debilitating one. So to find some sort of solution that's equitable to everyone, that, that recognises their status, as I think the deal they're cooking up wants to do, recognises their status as a royal, but also gives them freedom to go away and be a human being outside of that capacity. I think that makes a great deal of sense. And let's not forget that many worse things have happened to the monarchy than this. I do find it a little unfair that people accuse Meghan and Harry of a lack of self-restraint when you consider how many in the older generation are not only divorced, but divorced in the most bitter and public way imaginable. The royal family has been through this. And that, that generational experience of almost mass divorce was in some ways necessary, although a divorce is always tragic. In some ways it was necessary because up to that point, the monarchy was publicly living a lie. Individuals within it were forced to perform as a happy married couple when they really weren't. So what would we prefer? Would we prefer a monarchy which is a sham and a performance or a monarchy that is honest? And in some ways, uh, that, that transparency is what Meghan and Harry are bringing to the monarchy. They're saying, let's be honest, Harry's got nothing to do in this anymore. He's met a celebrity. He wants to go away and be with her. And he, he wants to do things that he's interested in, usually involving the rhino or uh, you know, giving an Oscar to pets or something. He's not, he's not interested in the usual he's not interested in the usual circuit of things that you do in Britain so why not let him go and do that Katie why is there so much more interest in Harry and Meghan than there has been in Prince Andrew he obviously res basically resigned as a senior royal mm. as well but but in much worse circumstances than just fancying a different life. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think quite simply because they are the global superstars of the royal family. I mean, they are absolutely massive. I mean, I you know, covered William and, and Kate's wedding for the American audience. That was huge. But there is something about this story that has just made it global. It's a huge story in America, clearly because she is their American princess. And, you know, I agree with Tim. Obviously, far, you know, worse things have happened to the royal family. And you look at the, you know, look at the War of the Waleses and the true damage that that did to the House of Windsor. But I think, you know, this has been damaging, not because of what Harry and Meghan want to do. And I think... You've used that word human, and it's so interesting that you use that because it it is an oxymoron with the royal family because we don't expect them to be human. We almost expect them to be robotic and void of any emotion, mm. but they are humans. Mm. And, and Harry is a very emotional human. But I think bringing it back to that human point, it was the way that they did it that people have 
such a problem with it was the disrespect that he showed not just the queen his grandmother not necessarily what he's trying to do and it goes back to that point we were making earlier about the blueprint and if they can come up with something that's sensible that works for the queen that works for the couple and that actually fits well with the public who will probably be footing part of the bill for security or frogmore or whatever it might be then it may be no bad thing i just think what's so unfortunate about this is how it happened. Why did he do it that way? Is that just his personality? Is he just naturally impetuous? He can be impulsive. He can definitely be impulsive. I think when you look at that ITN documentary with Tom Bradby, and you can see, and I was on that tour, and I did at points when the you know when the mask slipped and the cameras were off, and you just watched them, you know, they, they the the smiles did slip, but I think really it was only on that documentary where we saw the scale of their unhappiness, which gave a pretty good insight into how desperate they were. And I think they went and had these wonderful seven weeks in Canada, away from the spotlight, away from the family, an opportunity to actually see what life could be like. And I think they made their minds up. I do think that the fact that the son had that story that they would back off to Canada and all this question mark over their royal roles probably was the catalyst, the trigger that made them think, well, we've got to do something. Because you know, this is a very controlling couple. They want to control their media image. They want to control the narrative. And I think they felt that that was being taken away from them. Cue, we are going to do it. We are going to issue that statement, uh, despite being told not to. Tim... A lot of people have said that, that Meghan has attracted quite a lot of racism within the royal household and also within media coverage. Do you mm. think that is the case? I certainly don't think, speaking as someone who works within the press, I would say this, that, that there is any conscious bias. I'm a little reluctant to say yes or no because I am a white man and inevitably the way that I perceive news coverage is going to be very different from someone who isn't. And I'm also sensitive about the fact that Harry has married someone very, very different to the usual royal. And he's also now got a child and that child is mixed race. So I can imagine that Harry probably sees issues of race in a slightly different way to how he would have seen them before. So I know some people have just said, no, this is an excuse. It's, it's, it, and it's a, a misjudgment to blame it all on racism. But equally, I'm willing to say that because I don't have that perspective myself, uh, the way I interpret the coverage is going to be very different to someone who does have that perspective. Katie? It's it's such a tricky one. And, you know, and I get trolled endlessly when I when I possibly slightly critical or deemed to be slightly critical of Megan. And I think there's a clear difference between criticising someone and being, you know, it doesn't make you a racist just because you've criticised someone who is of, of, of mixed heritage. I mean, that's absolutely ludicrous. I, I listen, I, you know, I've been in the newspaper industry for, for nearly two decades. I don't think there is any institutionalised racism. I mean, our comments like exotic DNA, is, is that is that racist? I suppose you I suppose some people might say it is a headline like straight out of Compton. Well, it's, you know, it's pretty derogatory, isn't it? And it wasn't even accurate. So, look, I think you can certainly point to examples. But I also believe and to address your question about racism in the royal family. I mean, one of the Queen's senior members of staff is black. I don't think there's racism there. And I and I also think that when Meghan married into the royal family, and I've said this before, there was a genuine feeling of optimism about this. Not just that Harry had found a love and someone to settle down with, which I think the nation just was so happy about, but that feeling that this was a woman with a black mother and a white father who was going to breathe fresh air into the monarchy, which sounds like a a bit of a cliche, but 
I think the nation embraced that. I don't want to think of Britain or our press or our royal family as racist. I, I don't believe we are. Did she marry in as an outsider? Yes. Yes, she did. In the same way, by the way, that Kate Middleton did. And has she found that a challenge? Absolutely. In the same way that Kate Middleton did. And has she been attacked over certain things and criticised? Yes. In the same way that Kate Middleton was. The, say, the, the tragedy is they were seen as the future which is one reason why them walking away is so upsetting and so difficult for the royal family. And also, everyone did welcome them. There was a great deal of enthusiasm and hope. And the fact that that's been misinterpreted along the way as them being unwelcome, I find strange and itself slightly hurtful as well. Believe it or not, this is the British being nice. <laughs> and we might, might, might not always have felt what like... What a lovely country we <laughs> this, are. Well, yeah, but this is the way we talk. This is not L.A., we don't do the fake air kissing stuff. Uh, we're not going to pretend to be like totally in love with you. But this is us. This is us at being as welcoming as we possibly can. Can be. I just jump in and make a point about the Queen and, and yeah. the welcome? Because I completely agree with you about the country being welcoming. I mean, look at the crowds in Windsor. There was genuine goodwill towards this mm. couple. But I think the Queen and and many of the royal family went out of their way to make them feel welcome. Mm. I mean, there's not been a royal girlfriend who's been invited to Sandringham for Christmas, okay? That's never happened before. Not even yeah. for William, who dated Kate for 10 years. And yet, the Queen wanted that feeling of inclusivity, I think, from the start. Even before she was a fully-fledged royal, Meghan deemed clever, articulate, opinionated, strong woman. That was embraced by the royal family. They sent her out to, for chogger meetings and on official engagements. Again, pushing those posts, those boundaries to accommodate her. So this idea that they haven't been made to feel welcome, I don't know. I I do know, I have it from very good authority, that it's been difficult at times with the Cambridges, particularly between William and Harry. And perhaps when they're saying they feel unwelcome, maybe they are specifically talking about certain members of the royal family. But I don't believe that those accusations can be levelled at the Queen, or in fact, Prince of Wales either. Just on the, the topic of the Queen, finally, Tim, the question that a lot of people are asking beyond Meghan and Harry, is what is going to happen to the monarchy when the Queen passes away? Oh, no, don't ask that. We're, we're, all, we're all pretending it's never going to happen. Yes. We're in denial. First of all, it's in safe hands. I honestly believe that. I'm a big Charles fan. And one of the things I like about Charles uh, is that he happens to like the things I like. Uh, he likes, he likes Shakespeare, he <laughs> likes Wagner, he likes gardening, he talks to his plants. There's something very reassuring about Charles. He's been waiting to do this job a very long time. He's trained. There was a lot of PR disaster as a consequence of the divorce. But he is, he is going to handle this very, very well. He understands what he can and cannot do. Uh, the bigger question is what the monarchy be like after Charles is gone. That to me is the bigger question. And there I think there will be a cultural step change because I think William, Kate have subtly different personalities. They haven't been groomed in quite the same way and I think they will probably want to do monarchy a bit differently. But actually, I think the switch from the Queen to Charles III or whatever he'll be called will be much, much smoother than some people speculate. Do you agree, Katie? Yeah, I do. I, I, I'm not sure what more I can add because I think you've summed it up beautifully. I do know that William, for a long time, as, as, a, as a young man, struggled with the idea of his destiny and being king. But that sense of duty that was instilled from an early age is very much there. And sovereign, I am told from very senior sources, it's all about sovereign for Charles and now for William. And I think... I agree. I think Charles will be a great king and I think the transition will be seamless. I think 
Queen Catherine and, and King William will probably implement change. They will have to. The monarchy has to progress. It has to modernise. But I think William has that sense of duty and that commitment to his grandmother's legacy and his father's legacy that he will continue whilst putting his own unique stamp onto that brand of royalty. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months, from the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books conversation. Next month, Ireland goes to the polls. Leo Varadkar has often been seen as something of a Brexit bogeyman, especially when it came to the seemingly intractable problem of the Irish border. Now that it's been resolved, Liam Halligan writes that Varadkar is keen to work with the UK in the next stage. The problem now is that Varadkar may not be Taoiseach for long. So what might happen in the Irish election? Liam joins me now together with Tony Connolly, Europe editor of RTE News. So, Tony, for listeners who aren't so clued up on Irish politics, can you give us a brief overview of what has led to this election? Yes. Well, the current government uh, has been in place since 2016, uh, February 2016, and it's led by Fine Gael, uh, which is a kind of a centre-right party. And, of course, Fine Gael is led by Leo Varadkar, who's the Taoiseach. But the party lost about 40 seats in 2016. And uh, as a result, it had to go into a minority situation arrangement, uh, a confidence and supply agreement with Fianna Fáil, who's the main opposition party. And that's been a kind of an unsteady arrangement uh, since then. But it really held together because of Brexit uh, and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil had an understanding that they would try and keep this show on the road as long as Brexit was happening, as long as the divorce negotiations were happening. But along the road, there were quite a few bumps and controversies. Uh, and before Christmas, the Fine Gael party contested four by-elections and lost all four. These were brought about because of MEPs going to, to, to Brussels, who were, who were MPs or TDs, as we call them. So... It was felt that the government's minority had become so small that it could fall at any moment because of a confidence motion. So ultimately, Leo Varadkar decided to take destiny in his own hands and to call an election himself for February the 8th. He'd always said that it would be around May of 2020, but he's brought that forward to try at least have some control of the situation. That's why he's called it at this time. Liam, tell us a bit about the opposition. Well, the opposition is Fianna Fáil. It's a, a broadly centre-left, sort of soft nationalist party. It's led by Michael Martin, who's a seasoned campaigner. This is his third time of leading his party into an election. I mean, during the financial crisis, the, when the Celtic Tiger was, was shot, if you like, the go-go noughties in Ireland, as they came to an end, and Ireland ended up having to go to the IMF slash Brussels for a, for a bailout. 
which was you know very very controversial and many people still feel that Ireland got the bad end of that deal rightly so in my view Fianna Fáil was was chided for leading the economy off a cliff so Michael Martin whatever happens will is will go down as a sort of giant in Irish political history because he's rebuilt the main opposition party so much so as Tony Connolly says you know that they, they could now give uh, Leo Varadkar uh, a run for his money in fact the momentum is now with Martin the, the momentum is now with the opposition the polls are neck and neck but the likes of Paddy Power have got Varadkar odds on to lose not only because the by-elections have gone the opposition party's way but crucially in my view and I, I bow to Tony's superior knowledge of course it strikes me that the opposition party reversing a decade-long trend as I point out in the in the magazine this week are actually making headway in the capital which is not only symbolically important of course it's where such a big chunk of the population is. And Tony what are the key issues that are going to be contested in this election. Obviously, our December election here in Britain was about Brexit and life after Brexit. What's it going to be like in Dublin? Well, certainly Fine Gael, the governing party, would like it to be about Brexit and they're really trying to display their credentials. Fine Gael, of course, defended Ireland's interests in the divorce negotiations and they managed to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland through the withdrawal agreement and they're they're trying to burnish their credentials as being the responsible party of government having you know worked their influence at EU level Fine Gael is pretty well situated within the European People's Party, which of course have has people like Angela Merkel uh, in, in involved, and they can point to their statesmanlike experience and the results that they've delivered uh, on Brexit so far. And they would also say that I think, as Liam points out in his article, that this is only half time. We still have to do the trade negotiations and. You know, given the choice, you'd rather have us in the hot seat than than Fianna Fáil, who are pretty much untested. Their reputation, as far as Fine Gael is concerned, is still tainted by what happened with the financial crash. But of course, voters have much more pressing concerns. Of course, the government's uh, standpoint and uh, its negotiating objectives were universally supported both politically and uh, across the country, you know, with a few exceptions here and there. Uh, And, you know, people uh, admire the government for doing that. But, you know, uh, for voters, bread and butter issues will always come back very quickly. And the big issue is health. Another big issue is housing. The, uh, The campaign for Fine Gael got off to a pretty tricky start on Wednesday because a homeless man was asleep in a tent on the canal in Dublin and a digger that was involved in clearing the canal of debris clutched his tent and and inflicted life-changing injuries and it was a terribly tragic event but Fine Gael, Leo Varadkar tried to make a bit of a political point out of it by saying that the Lord Mayor of Dublin is Fianna Foyle. He should have he should be making statements about this. So you can see how the agenda is going to be brought very quickly back to the domestic level and, and I think Fianna Gael is going to find that tough going. It sounds like it could get quite ugly, Liam. 
I think it's going to be very a, a much a mano a mano election. Ireland has a different voting system to us, of course. It's a kind of a single transferable vote system. But you know, you you have Varadka leading his party into an election for the first time because it was kind of a transfer of power between elections from Ender Kenny to Varadka. When he came in, he was wildly popular. You know, a 38-year-old, openly gay, son of an immigrant. For many people in Ireland and indeed of Irish origin like me, this was a fabulous moment. A country we love, modernising, looking tolerant outward looking uh, to the world not just economically and commercially as it's always been but also in terms of its kind of social mores and for a while he was absolutely there was a huge honeymoon with the Irish public but he he wasn't completely sure-footed on everything there was a sense that maybe he wasn't mature enough for high office in all fairness to him and now you have uh, an opposition leader this is the last time for him this is his third uh, attempt there will be very much sort of hands-on attacks going on. We're already seeing the early signs of that happening now. And so I think this is not just because a lot of the world's been focused on UK and Ireland and the relationship between them. You know, maybe Tony will disagree, but for, for me as a, an Irish person living in England, you know, the last 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement, relations have been the best they've ever been and it's been a source of enormous relief to people like me and it's been sad to see relations become tarnished in recent years as we've gone head to head over Brexit. So Brexit will be centre stage but my thought during this kind of clash of these two big beasts of Irish politics is what role will Brexit play? It's not just about yes we've defended Ireland's interests but I think a lot of Irish people want to see good relations for the most part restored with their big neighbour to the east. There's so many hundreds of thousands of Irish people living here, a lot of trade, not as much as there used to be, but it's still a lot. And I think maybe potentially the attitude towards Brexit during this election may start to, if not reverse, then slightly be tempered. Now, Tony, if the opposition, if, if Martin wins, would he put a tougher stance in the trade talks that are going to be taking place between Britain and the EU over the next few months? I don't think we'll see any major difference in the posture of Ireland in these trade negotiations. Uh, and I would just pick up on Liam's point. I mean, if he's absolutely right. The relations between the two countries were at their zenith, in fact, when Brexit happened. We had a very successful state visit of Her Majesty the Queen to Ireland in 2011. It only took a 100 years, Tony. <laughs> it only took a 100 years, exactly. But I think it was worth it in the end because it was a remarkably emotional occasion and people really took to it more than perhaps they had admitted or had expected. And then we had a return visit by Michael D. Higgins, the President of Ireland, to, to the UK. But, you know, ultimately Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, in economic terms, there's not that much difference between them ideologically and they will approach the free trade negotiations with the same ambitions and objectives. I mean, basically... Ireland depends significantly on trade with the UK, not as much as it did back in the 1970s. Uh, most of our trade now goes to the single market uh, or the rest of the world, and a large amount goes to the United States. But uh, 14% of Ireland's exports go to the UK, and they will want that to continue in, in very sensitive sectors of the economy, especially in agri-food. The UK market is par excellence the most important market for Irish beef farmers and uh, cheddar producers. And 
both parties will want to defend that. And that's why you will see uh, much more warm and encouraging rhetoric from uh, Leo Varadkar if he is re-elected or, or Michal Martin if he's elected uh, towards uh, the UK in these trade negotiations. They want a very close trade relationship. And Leo Varadkar has said that you know, Ireland would be uh, Athena to Britain's Hercules in the trade negotiations, uh, want to be a friend uh, and uh, a, a guiding light. Thanks, Liam, and thank you, Tony. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk, where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Brownie Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes store. And last, what happens when charity work doesn't quite live up to be the rewarding experience you expect? Cosmo Landsman volunteered at a homeless shelter Christmas Day, but writes in this week's issue that it was just, in his words, really boring. So what went wrong? He joins me now together with The Spectator's commissioning editor, Mary Wakefield. So Cosmo, tell us about volunteering at Crisis at Christmas. You started off hoping for a warm, glowing feeling, but you ended up being told off for joking about homeless people not tipping. Well, uh, Crisis, everyone I know has done their time at Crisis at Christmas, and I had nowhere to go this Christmas. And so instead of sitting around feeling sorry for myself, I thought I'd do something socially worthwhile. And I would like, you know, also be a good thing to get. I wanted to get that kind of great do-good buzz that I've, all my friends have talked about. So I went off there to get that kind of moral high, and it didn't quite work out that way for me. How? I felt that what I was doing was so perfunctory, so unengaging, so unrewarding for them that I didn't get the glow. Do you know what I mean? I was washing. I mean, I mean it, you're like a little cog in a much bigger machine. So I, I, felt, I felt left out a bit, I guess. Mary, you have volunteered for a number of years with the homeless. Yes. Have you experienced this glow or is that not really the the thing for you? Uh, uh, Yes, definitely I have. I mean, you know, Cosmo's speech is very interesting because it seems to suggest at the end that he might be going, welcome the idea of going back to do it again. So I think the thing is, you don't necessarily get what you're looking for. And I thought what was so brilliant about Cosmo's piece was the way he explains that, you know, the guests or the, the homeless, the customers, as it were, don't behave in a way you'd expect. Mm-hmm. You imagine them all to be sort of Tiny Tim or kind of Oliver saying, oh, yes. please, sir, can I have some more? Yeah, thank yes. you so much. Exactly. Kind of exactly. You know, but then, and they were complaining uh, about the gravy. Yeah, no, but that's brilliant. <laughs> like, my experience of it is, I mean, I was first very taken aback by that, you know. Mm. I used to do breakfast for the homeless and mm. they were in- unbelievably pernickety about their eggs. You know, but on the other but hand... Why shouldn't they be? Why shouldn't they be? They're, they're I, just I found like that, us. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. And, they, and that's one of those moments where you're like, well, of course they're normal people. Who, yeah. I mind about my eggs. I'm unbelievably you know, fussy about my eggs. So I found that extremely um, uplifting. Yeah. So the destruction of your own prejudices is rather cheery. And that's one of the things I enjoy about it. Mm. You know, The fact that they're not cap-doffing kind of... Supplicants. I know. I had to get rid of that idea very quickly. I did have a little. I must have confessed. I had a little. I was a little bit shocked when I had to go back and wait another thirty minutes in the queue because it was uh, too much gravy. uh, I just thought, like, eat it up. Come on. What's the big deal? You wouldn't gravy. I wasn't doing this, so why should I? Tea is just the great bane of my life. If the tea isn't strong enough, then you're pretty much totaled. But then it's the same in the office here. Mm. You know, people really mind about their tea. So is the problem, Cosmo, that people do these volunteering experiences because they are hoping to get something from it when actually you are there basically to ensure the event happens it's not really 
like a teenager's gap year where they're sort of hoping well, to find themselves in Nepal. I think there's a little. No, it is. It is I think exactly there's actually like a little that. bit like that, but you yeah. don't have to go to Nepal. Yeah. I mean, that raises the question about altruism itself. Is it always self-motivated, or can you ever be purely disinterested for the greater good? So I think there's a there's a balance, there's a trade-off. I mean, I think a lot of people talk about it in a very excited way of, you know, oh, it was an amazing experience. I, you know, feel so good about it. But my point, is, as I say, that's not what it really should be about. I'm there to, you know, to make other people's lives. It isn't about what I get and feeling good about myself because, you know, I'm a vacuous media person. So I don't think they should provide that sense of self-justification. Quite right. But then, you know, you do find people drop away and people stay in terms of the volunteers. Mm. And you end up with people who do want to do it for the, for the mm. long time. But I must admit, I did feel a little bit envious because I have talked to people who said about, oh, it was so amazing. So, and Cosmo, why so, I'm sure you're one of them, Mary. Why? You probably, no, you I tell probably you what it does. It. I, I think, I mean, I think Isabel's question is great, but I think different people go for different reasons, and that is true of the homeless too. Mm. Everyone's there for a slightly different reason. Perhaps if there's a uniting reason, it's that everyone can forget their normal lives. Mm. So whether you're doing the toilets, washing up, cooking whether you're on crack or just lonely, mm. you know, on the street for that few hours. Mm. You can forget the stuff. You're in the same space together. And Cosmo is brilliant at talking, and I think you'd be invaluable to a, any sort of soup kitchen just to, <laughs> for the conversations you can have with people because that is just as important as the tea. I tried. I did. I did try. And you, you kind of enjoyed it. I did enjoy that. Yes, I did enjoy. You forgot it. about your, you know, other but I, stuff. As I, as I said in my piece, it's just like talking to media people. They just talk about themselves all the time. So I'm very well yeah, but trained. They've got in more their interesting theory. lives. Better lives. Better stories. Much better stories. Yes. So that bit worked. Mary, yeah. what keeps you doing it? Because it's one thing to do this for sort of short-term experiences. It's another thing to keep traipsing along when there are other things that might actually, on a wet Wednesday in January, seem more appealing. Nothing. I mean. Honestly, I mean, talking to sort of politicians and journalists isn't, isn't nearly as interesting as talking to the people who end up in a soup kitchen because they've had more varied lives. As Cosmo says, everyone's self-interested and self-absorbed, so there's nothing to choose from there. I'm not quite sure, but... You just keep doing it because uh, yeah, there's something you know, that pulls you back. After a few years, you start having very good friends. Um, but I also think the, that a lot of the homeless people, I mean, because when I see homeless people, not just at crisis at Christmas, but on the street, and they want money, I always engage in conversation first. I give them the Cosmo lecture about life and how you can have higher aspirations. Or they, one guy said, listen, you know, here, take the money back and just go away. He was so, he was so, <laughs> he was so irritated by yeah. my sort of relentless, upbeat, you can change your life rap. So when you're in that situation, I, I think it's really a good chance to really sit down and talk more. It's a very different context seeing them in crisis at Christmas when you're at a table eating as opposed to on the street where they sometimes have to go into kind of a begging poor me routine. There yeah. they're just more people. And you can, I enjoy you, you that. hear a much more real story. I mean, there's also a big difference between the sorts of people you see on the street begging and the sorts of people in soup kitchens. Mm. A lot of the soup kitchen crew would say they would never demean themselves. To, exactly, you know? yeah. So, But that's a whole other question, like who is actually home who is actually who's doing rough what, sleeping, who's, who's rough sleeping, who's begging, whatever. But and a lot of people have been quite alarmed by the rise of sort of homeless settlements. Almost there oh, yeah, is that's there is another, one that's that another. is quite shaming that's in the Westminster Tube by the entrance to Parliament, which must have about eight or nine people in sleeping bags. The homelessness situation does seem to be getting worse. In your experience as a volunteer, is that correct? Yes and no. The the the. The tent villages are a slightly separate question. A lot of the time that's, you know, a particular community of people 
and it's not necessarily such a good idea in that you don't know what's going on in those tents. It's easier to take drugs in a tent, for instance. It's easier to go and buy drugs from people in tents. It's not necessarily a sign that, you know, there's more people being pushed onto the street. The tent thing is rather new phenomenon, isn't it? Because I remember homelessness in the 80s where I, when I lived in Holborn. Yeah. You would find an entire street of people sleeping out. I mean, just an unbelievable number of people. They, they didn't have tents Yeah. In, in well, some people, days. you know, there's a whole conversation going on, I think, which I am by no means an expert in about, you know, what it's a good thing to do. There are churches giving out tents. Mm-hmm. And there's other people, you know, perhaps more professional people in the sector saying, no, don't give tents because it means we can't see people to help them. You know, you can't tell who's sort of suffering from exposure, who needs to be to talk about crack cocaine, who, you know. So it's, it's complicated. You know, and the, the people begging on the streets aren't necessarily homeless, mm-hmm. right? Most of them have somewhere to go. It's part of an organised gang and Mm. they make a hell of a lot of money. So it's very hard to tell whether it's growing or not. And Cosmo, you might go back next Christmas. I'll definitely do it again. What sort of frame of mind do you think you'll go in? I think I have a different set of expectations. I don't think, I'm not going to be looking for my great moral glow or my great wonderful story of all all the goodness I did. I'm just going to go there and do it, you know. Get on with it. I've got much admiration for that and you can pop round to mine uh, for a cup of tea afterwards. (laughs) For a turkey. (laughs) Thanks Cosmo and Mary. And that's it for this week. Do pick up the latest issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as more from Neil Ferguson, David Frum and Cressida Bonas. And remember, you can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, as well as a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. (laughs) 